Almost from a very early age, we train our young female minds to believe that our identity, our sense of competence is really connected to who we are as people. When it's not, it's connected to the effort, the process that we put into the outcome. There's a massive survey done to show that there, for women especially, a huge disconnect between confidence and competence. That women would feel like they need to show 100% of abilities in a job ad before they feel confident to apply. And in contrast, men feel like if they have 60%, it's more than half, you know, I'm in, they're gonna hire me for sure. So really, I think even from now, we can start thinking, how do we praise ourselves? Welcome to CEO School. We're your hosts, Sanira Madani and Shannon Monson, and we believe that you deserve to have it all. Less than 2% of female founders ever break 1 million in revenue, and we're on a mission to change that. Each week, you'll learn from incredible mentors who have made it to the 2% Club, as well as women well on their way, sharing how they've defied the odds so that you can do it too. You're a real business now. Class is officially in session. This episode is sponsored by The Club, a quarterly box and digital monthly community to help you level up in leadership and life. Learn more today at join.theceoschool.co slash the club. Hi, everyone. Welcome to CEO School. This is your host, Sanira Madani, and I'm so excited for today's episode to interview a psychologist, not just any psychologist an award-winning psychologist, and her research on memory and the brain has been highlighted everywhere in every massive publication. Dr. Tracy Alloway is here with us today, and she is the author of over 15 books, 15, and over 100 scientific articles specifically on the brain. And her latest book is called Think Like a Girl. And you know we were so excited to bring her on the show so that we can unpack and learn how we as women really do think and learn from a um, actual scientist and a doctor. Uh, Dr. Tracy has been featured on BBC, Good Morning America, The Today Show, Forbes, Bloomberg, Washington Post, Newsweek. And I kid you not, the list continues to go on. And she's also consulted for so many major documentaries for ABC, NBC, and all of the major television um, networks. And so without further ado, I'd love to welcome to the show today, a brown female powerhouse, Dr. Tracy Alloway. Welcome to CEO School. Thank you so much, Sunira. I am so excited to be here with you today. I mean, oh my God, I am so thrilled for so many reasons, right? I mean, I kind of mentioned them. One, you are a mega celebrity psychologist, which it's amazing to see women in some of the, in medical professions as well, like really highlighting as the thought leaders that we should be. So kudos to all of your success. We are so here for it, but I'm really excited to hear about your journey and to unpack kind of, I want to hear your story. But I really also selfishly want to know, think like a girl and some of the major research findings that you have that our listeners, I know, would just love to hear. Yeah, well, thanks so much for that. Um, You know, from a young age, I knew that I wanted to be a psychologist. So really, you know, from from college, I knew I was really passionate and really excited just to be able to discover how a brain works. But the more I began to get into it, the more I began to see that a lot of times the research was presented with a broad brushstroke, a kind of one size fits to all. And that really isn't the case. In my own lab, I began to see different nuances. 
How do we make decisions under stress? Are we really more emotional? Do we have to adopt these more masculine traits to be perceived as a good leader? All of these different questions, in fact, I began to think of them as myths that either we hear along the way or we tell ourselves. And that's really what motivated me to tackle those questions in my newest book, Think Like a Girl, I wanted to discover how does our brain actually work? Does it match up with some of these statements we hear or tell ourselves? And how can we ultimately maximize some of the strengths of how our brain works? That's incredible. Can we just dive right in? How does our brain, (laughs) what did you find? I mean, you've obviously done over a hundred research papers. That is a lot. Um, You um, have not, I don't know, for those of you that are listening just on audio, uh, Dr. Tracy, you don't look like a research scientist that has done over 100 research. <laughs> uh, you're very young. Uh, I know you're a mom too as well. I know we were chatting about that before the show started and you have two young boys. I'm so excited to like, kind of like unpack all of this, but I want to dive right in. How does You've obviously, you've studied it a lot. Yeah. So one of the first things that I really was curious about is how we make uh, decisions under stress. So this this whole myth, are women more emotional when we make decisions? And to kind of explore that, mm-hmm. I use a very well-known uh, dilemma. It's called the trolley dilemma. And some of your listeners may have heard of it. It's made its way into popular media. So you're standing on these railway tracks, a train or trolley is coming towards you, and it's going to harm five people. But you can save the day by switching the track that the train is on, and it'll only harm one person instead of the five. Now, a lot of times, and this has been done, you know, in hundreds of labs and so on, and the finding is very uh, similar. Women tend to be very emotional. Even in my own lab, a lot of the female participants would say things like, I can't, I can't do that. I can't even imagine making this decision. And what I discovered was really two things. One, um, that women are being motivated by a desire to protect. So their desire to not make a harming decision is because we are so motivated to protect. And that's why it's perceived as being emotional. We just want to prevent as much harm as possible. The second thing I discovered is that we can flip the switch in our brain. So we know there are two pathways when we make decisions. There's a hot decision-making center, that emotional center of our brain, the amygdala. And there's the cold or rational decision-making center, the prefrontal cortex, which sits in the front of our brain. And so typically, if you're finding it difficult to switch from a hot decision or an emotional decision to a more rational decision, I found that when you stick your hand in a bucket of ice just for one minute, it activates your fight or flight. So that means your emotional brain is busy tackling this perceived threat. It's thinking, I got to focus on this stress that's coming in right now. And that frees up your rational brain center, your prefrontal cortex, to make a more rational decision. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, so you're telling me this is an ice cold cup of water that I have here. Okay, I'm going to put this right in front of you. And you're saying that if I stick my finger in the ice water, if I need to make a decision, that it will actually help me unleash my pragmatic side of my brain. Exactly. So what we did in the lab was it's called the cold presser task. And it's well documented in scientific literature where if you stick your hand and we you know, did it up to our elbow in a bucket of ice and we took physiological measures. So ah. uh, participants were recording feeling stressed, uh, their temperature changed as well as a function of stress. So they were certainly experiencing symptoms of what's called acute stress. So short periods of stress, not chronic stress. And that was enough 
to switch the brain to focus on that stress, which then freed up our, our rational brain. Okay. So I've never heard this before. I, it's mind blowing. So if I need to make decisions, cause definitely it is very natural for me. And I can speak from my experience. I've seen this with many women. We tend to make an emotional decision first before we actually ever rationalize it. So mm-hmm. when do you do this? So like, do you keep an ice bucket <laughs> next to you? <laughs> I mean, you know, at, at headquarters here at my office, there's a billion decisions I have to make all day long. And so do you suggest I keep like an ice bucket that I just continue to dip? How would I utilize that? How do women utilize yeah. their day to day? Yeah, so a great example is let's say you're headhunted and you're being offered a job in another city. Your first instinct is that desire to protect kicks in. You're thinking, I can't let my boss down. What about my team? We work well together. So you want to protect them. You don't want to cause any harm. And so we're thinking with our emotional brain at that point. So as you're you know, thinking about those decisions and the pros and cons, sticking your hand in the bucket of, the, of ice, that's when you make a decision. You can think, well, what are the pros? What is the rational way? You know, what are some of the benefits in actually accepting this job? Maybe it's better professionally, more opportunities and so on. So it kind of opens up your brain to considering the pros in a less emotional way. That is really interesting. It's so different. Okay, so what else did you learn? Tell me more about your research. (laughs) Yeah, a big thing that I was also interested in is leadership. And I know we were talking a little bit earlier, some of your listeners are, are in the workplace, they want to know more about leadership. And so one of the myths there that I wanted to tackle is whether we have to be more masculine to be perceived as a good leader. And, um, you know, as I was doing, (laughs) yeah, you're nodding. I can see that. And so, um, you know, as I was doing research for that chapter, all of the forums, all of the blogs that I was reading, the discussion boards were saying very similar things. Women were saying, well, you know, I, I felt like I had to dress a particular way to be perceived more powerful. Or I was even told to change the way I spoke, the pitch of my voice, even um, just to be perceived to, as a better leader. And so I really wanted to understand if this is truly a myth or maybe this is something we should be leaning into. And so I found a couple things. The first thing I found was that uh, from another research lab, that they found that when women were adopting what they labeled as masculine traits, so maybe aggressive, always thinking that, you know, it's their way and we're going to follow this protocol and so on. So that's how the researchers label that. And when women adopted that kind of a style, they were actually perceived as a weak leader by their male counterparts. And it could be that it wasn't authentic to how they were naturally. And so by trying to adopt a persona that wasn't true to themselves, their male uh, colleagues, their male counterparts did not actually perceive that as a strength, was counterproductive. So that was really interesting for me to discover as I was doing the research. But a second piece from my own lab was that um, I began to explore leadership styles. And we can think of leadership as two ways. One, a transactional leader, the leader that is goal-directed. We have a deadline, let's work, let's get it done. Or a transformative leader, the more a group-directed, everyone throw ideas at the table, we'll work through that together. And what's interesting here is that leadership is not a trait. In other words, we're not born with being either a transactional or transformative leader. It's a style and we can adopt it based on what is best for that situation. And I remember sharing this to a female friend of mine who who is a fantastic entrepreneur. And she just took a step back and she said, Tracy, that is mind blowing. I've always told myself that I was born to be, you know, X type of a leader. And now you're telling me actually it's not, it's just something that I can adopt. Just like 
today I want to wear red, tomorrow I'll wear blue. It's just as, you know, as um, simple as that. But the interesting follow-up is that I found that when women adopted a style that was, again, not authentic. So in other words, if they took on transactional traits when the situation did not require that, they reported feeling higher levels of stress and experience burnout far more quickly. And this was even in our millennial leaders. So it's not just if you've been in the role for a long time, but even for new, you know, relatively, you're just kind of learning the ropes as a leader, even that finding a style or adopting a style that wasn't authentic to you as an individual was causing a lot of stress and would be, you know, and that's why we may see a lot of women in the workplace trying to throw in the towel saying, I'm, I'm done, it's too much for me, it's not worth it. You know, we, we hear those kinds of phrases and it could be, because we are buying into the myth that we need to adopt a particular style or trait that isn't authentic to our leadership style. I love this so much. I cannot tell you because I feel this on every single level. Like every single piece of my being understands every single thing that you just said. And I'm so excited to kind of dig a little bit deeper here, if you don't mind, and unpack this a bit. And I'm happy to share kind of my journey as an example. I am a millennial leader. I have almost 200 employees at one of my companies and it is, I feel like my leadership style, that is definitely one of the first pieces of takeaways. I did not know that leader. I always thought I was, you're either born with it. Like people just naturally have leadership tendencies. So I did not know that. So that's really interesting. And it's really good news that you can grow and adapt and it is different styles. And I've seen my style shift. And at first I remember when I first got started, I was a, the leader who I knew how to be, right? So I wasn't influenced by any outside leaders. I was building my company from scratch. It was a lot of feminine energy. It's who I was. It's the company that I was building. And I always, you know, used to say, I'm not a man in a skirt, right? That was like something that was just, I was really passionate about just leading with authentically who I want to be. But then actually, as I took on venture capital, as the company started to grow, as there were outside influences that came into my organization, I started to really naturally um, try to fit in by tapping into that masculine leadership style by I'm, I'm not strong enough or I'm not holding my team accountable enough. I'm not direct enough. I'm too emotional. I'm not being pragmatic enough on this decision or this, you know, or this turning point or this fit, whatever's taking place. I, I definitely did see myself adapting to this masculine energy and not that it didn't serve me well. And I, I, I want to, you know, when I look back at the organization and the growth, there were definitely a growth in my leadership that I think that there was like both sides that I needed to kind of scale the company. But over the last, I would say 18 months to two years, my company has been around for about seven. It's going to be our eighth year in business. So just to kind of give like a time frame of like my leadership and how it's grown. I had my coach tell me, I was actually talking to her about culture and how I've seen so many things change and things just aren't the same anymore. I really want to ensure that we're having teams of accountability, but also like a culture of like just a great culture. And I'm not seeing that take place. And she's like, Sanira, it's because you leaned, you've like forgotten your feminine energy. And she brought that back to my attention. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I'm so empathetic. I'm so, I'm so this, I, I went into like defense mode of like, because I'm such a feminist, like, what are you talking about that? I don't have my feminine energy. And it was really eye-opening for me to actually look at my leadership style and say, I actually adopted so far to the masculine energy because I was trying to do what I thought, like what others had perceived of what 
but we were on a, we're on a very fast, successful track path. So I thought, oh my God, this is how I'm supposed to be. And in turn, what you talked about, Dr. Tracy, is that it's actually viewed as bad leadership. Like it's actually when it's not authentic and I saw culture shift and it was a big reality check for me to say, let's tune into this and kind of get back to this, get back to who I actually am as a leader. And I can define who I want to be. I don't need to have that outside influence. So I feel this so hard. And I'm sure many of our listeners here listening today in the workplace do feel like sometimes we have to adopt into this style or sometimes we don't even get noticed or get taken seriously. It's just hearing you speak, Sunino, it's just so... I mean, it's fascinating to hear that story, that real life practice too. And just the fact that this is a myth that is so pervasive, that it's, it affects so many of us as well. And thank you for sharing that. Yeah, no, And I'm just validating kind of like what your research shows. I've lived it firsthand. I've absolutely lived mm-hmm. it firsthand. And I love that you, I love that it's a, it's a suit you could pick, you can wear it if it's red or if it's, <laughs> if it's blue and you decide and leadership can be learned. Right. And this is mm-hmm. um, part of like, you know, one of my missions now as, uh, as a CEO for, and specifically CEO schools, cause I didn't go to CEO school. I didn't have anybody uh, teaching me any of the ways. And I thought I had to be a certain person and I'm not a man in a skirt. I'm Sinira Madani. And this is who I am. <laughs> I want to be an authentic leader to myself. And I want to make sure that every woman in whatever position they may have, right. Whether it's entrepreneurial mm-hmm whether it's in business, whether it's not, but that feels like they can authentically be their best self. And that's what leadership is about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, a big part of that too is even understanding the disconnect in our brain between our confidence and our competence. Ooh, and so about that. <laughs> we do competence. You know, those are the two affirm every, we have a, I do a daily affirm. I do my journal every day. And you know, the one thing that I write in my journal every single day, is I am competent. It is a complex. That's amazing. I will really share with you screenshots. I will I will share with you share with you screenshots of pages and pages of my daily affirmations because I have the biggest fear of yeah. every day I show up for this job. It's the biggest job that I've ever had. It's a the, the job that I have today is bigger than the one I had yesterday because we're like growing yeah. so crazy. And competency yeah. is like I don't know. It's my biggest fear that people are not going to perceive me as competent enough to do this job. Yes, yeah, so I may I may like to suggest in addition to yeah. your affirmation, yeah. I am competent because I did X well today. Okay. Um, and I say that to my clients too, you know, as a licensed psychologist, like that's a way for us when we look back to just reaffirm in our brain and almost rewire that flip to I'm competent because I did X. And a lot of that, if we just kind of go on a slight tangent, but a lot of the reason for often why we lack confidence in our competence as women can be traced back to how we receive praise as children. And so there's a lot of research on two types of praise. We can praise the person. You are awesome. You're amazing. And typically girls receive this type of praise but they also take that kind of praise very differently than when boys get praised with the person-based praise. So a person-based praise, we connect that to our identity, our self-esteem. The contrast is um, process-based praise. Like, wow, I saw you working really hard. Wow, you were studying hard and that's why you did that. So you can see the difference when you praise the person, the outcome doesn't feel like you did anything to change or make that positive or negative. You just were. As a person, you were great. And that's why the outcome was great. 
But what happens when the converse occurs? So when the outcome isn't great, automatically we internalize that to, oh, well, well, we must not be great. And that's when our confidence starts you know, diminishing. But if we begin to praise the process, like, wow, I saw you work really hard, then we recognize our agency, our role in changing the outcome, that we can do something to make the outcome better. Maybe it wasn't what we wanted, but we have the ability the agency to do something different and so from a very early age we almost this is my girl, girl. You guys mind <laughs> blowing stuff right now oh my goodness unpacking so much right here <laughs> but almost from a very early age we we train our young female minds to believe that our identity our sense of competence is really connected to who we are as people. When it's not, it's connected to the effort, the process that we put into the outcome. Mm -hmm. And so that's why there's, again, you know, there's a massive survey done to show that there, for women especially, a huge disconnect between confidence and competence, that women would feel like they need to show 100% of abilities in a job ad before they feel confident to apply. And in contrast, men, feel like they, if they have 60%, it's more than half, you know, I'm in, they're going to hire me for sure. Um, and so really, I think even from now, we can start thinking, how do we praise ourselves? How do we praise the people around us? Are we praising them like, wow, uh, project looks great. You are awesome. Instead of you work really hard to make this project great. So are we praising the effort the process or are we praising the person? And that can make a huge difference in how our competence, how we perceive our own competence. I think this could be a, your next book. Number 16 is just on <laughs> confidence and competence because when you say it that way, it makes complete sense. Like it makes complete sense. And I mean, I could personally relate to this on both levels, me as a child, and me as a mother. And I, I do that. I literally praise my children for who they are, not their process. And this is such a good learning. And I, I see that even in like what, what you're saying from what I used to receive as like, I'm just amazing. My parents thought I was like the most amazing person ever and everything <laughs> worked out great, but it's not, a, I never got praised on process ever. That is mind blowing. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it, the great thing is it's an easy recalibration, if you will. You know, we're not we're not talking about years and years. We're actually it's like a mindset shift, and it's just really shifting our mindset to be intentional of how we praise effort, both in people around us as parents, as well as for ourselves. Are we just saying like, yeah, you got this, you're awesome, or you got this, you worked really hard, and that makes a huge difference into our sense of agency and ultimately our mental health as well. Um, and that's you know another of the myths that I address in the book is looking at happiness and mental health. Um, and I had a, a study with a few hundred different people, all walks of life, different demographic backgrounds. And I found, again, the very different buffers, if you will, that can protect us against experiencing depressive symptoms. So this was not a clinical population. This is what we call a community sample. So really just, you know, all of us. Um, and I wanted to know what that looks like. And I saw, you know, for women especially, our neurochemistry can sometimes put us at a slight disadvantage. It's not deterministic, but the way our brain is wired, it does make us, we have three times more receptors that make us attentive to stress and anxiety. Oh, you wow. could argue that it's part of our protective mechanism. You know, we're kind of more tribal, more community. And so we're, we're constantly looking around. We're being attentive to potential threats to protect, you know, and, and prevent harm. Uh, regardless of the reason for that, that is our neurochemistry. 
But again, we can change that. And so that, you know, a lot of this can lead to, you know, you know in our current world where life is relatively easy, um, it can lead to overthinking. So you have a job interview, you're thinking, oh my God, I shouldn't have said that. Why didn't I, I should have said this. I shouldn't have done that. I should have worn this. I shouldn't have worn that. And we just get into this cycle that is hard to escape from. And again, research shows that a simple word can make a big difference to recalibrate. Instead of saying yes, but, you know, so a colleague may say, it's awesome. You had an interview with those people. That's great. Yes, but I didn't do change the but to an and. Yes, and I had a chance to showcase my skills. Yes, and I had a chance to network and meet new people. Yes, and now I know what I'd like to do differently in the next interview. And again, um, a lot of the research shows, yeah, yes, and. (laughs) I love that. Oh my God. All the women listening here today, yes, and. I love that. Such a simple change, like such a simple change because we all catch ourselves doing like, yes, but this could have been better. Or I wish I, or I could have, and yes, but yes. And I X Y Z. So simple. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. Such a great finding that you just, and I didn't realize even something else when you were, I was smiling when you were talking about the neuroreceptors because I almost was like, man, I need to get every man in my life to listen to this podcast episode. So they know I'm not crazy (laughs) (laughs) for for being just in tune with so many things as well. Like it does serve us well. I would assume Mm -hmm. these neuroreceptors, it's probably also it's negative because we definitely overthink and overanalyze, but I do feel like my intuition and like my, my co-founder calls them my spidey skills. My spidey, <laughs> spidey senses. He calls them, I'll call them my, my, he's like, you just have these spidey senses. Like when I talk, when I have interviewing candidates or things like that, I'm like, yeah, but this wasn't right. And he's like, how'd you catch that? He's like, it's your spidey sense. It's not the spidey <laughs> sense, it's those extra neuro, uh, neuro sensors that we have as women. And how do we use our strengths, right? So what were some of the things that you found that you're like, oh my God, we should definitely be like double downing or like pressing go on these traits that think like a girl. Yeah, so empathy is a big one of that, uh, a big one in that particular area. So we know that our brain has what's called mirror neurons. And like the name suggests, we mirror other people's responses. And um, the interesting thing is, and that's one of the myths, it's not that women are more empathetic than men. So there's been twin studies, large-scale twin studies, actually looking at how we're wired in that way. But oftentimes women, young girls, are encouraged. So socially, we're developed or encouraged to build that skill a lot more. And so we, you know, we are more empathetic. And so I looked at this in the context of what I call the generous brain. And I looked at it specifically in digital giving. So Kickstarter, GoFundMes, uh, you know, even Facebook posts where people say, instead of my birthday, please donate to this cause that I'm passionate about. And I wanted to know how does our empathy brain kick in here? And I found that a big one is that for women, especially if we feel connected to the cause, like we're part of that community, we're more likely to kick in that empathy into overdrive and be generous. Um, in contrast for men, if they find that they have an ability to protect then they're more likely to be generous. And that's when their empathy senses kick in. So for women, it's, it's all about knowing how to activate that empathy. If you are feeling like, oh, it's a little difficult for me to feel connected, look for ways to activate those mirror neurons, you know, mirror the other person's body language when they're talking, find a way to connect and, and kind of, you know, boost up those spidey senses like you're talking about, those mirror neurons, so that you do feel a greater sense of connection with the person that you're connecting or communicating with. I mean, these are just incredible 
like practical and um I mean, I guess this is all, this is science, but it seems so, <laughs> it seems normal. Like it, it's, it's so amazing that you actually spent the time to go research this. This is so incredible. I feel I'm definitely learning a ton right now. What were like, how was this experience for you? I mean, this is your 16th book. I'd love to kind of go into a little bit about your journey. You've had so much success. I mean, congratulations. Kind of how was your path getting here and how can others learn from this, from your experience? Yeah, I appreciate you asking that. I am, to be perfectly honest, Tanir, writing this book was probably the hardest book to write, in part because I wrote it during the pandemic. And I am, as you may guess, you know, somewhat of an extroverted person. I, I love connecting with people. I love talking with people. And so to write in isolation was definitely challenging. And so I had to adopt very different strategies, you know, where uh, even virtually I had to make more of an effort to FaceTime friends that I hadn't seen in a while and just maybe, you know, set that kind of uh, connection up. But usually when I write, I love just even sitting at a coffee shop and saying, oh, I'm writing a chapter in happiness. What does happiness mean to you? And then I kind of listen for what they're saying, what resonates with them, what is not resonating. And then, you know, kind of go from there. It helps me develop my story that I'm creating too. And what, what part of the science are they interested in as well? And so um, as it was a challenge for sure, but it's also been so rewarding because the feedback and the writing has been so overwhelming and so positive. Just, you know, people like, yourselves is really sharing the excitement with me has been so worth it. That's awesome. I, I think it's incredible and we're here for it. We're here for all of it. Um, I have a question on think like a girl. Do you, do we want to, how do we encourage men to start thinking like <laughs> girls? Right. So, I mean, we kind of lean into, and there's, there's, there's good and bad in both. Where are ways that we can maybe promote? I know you're a boy mom. So I mean, <laughs> what are some things that we can ensure so there's some balance of energy? Such a great question. I love that. And I haven't been asked that actually. Oh, I would say, yeah. I would say it feels cool. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I would say it's looking at how we make uh, risky decisions. So I have a whole chapter on the risky brain. And the myth there that I look at is that women take fewer risks than men. And in fact, that's not the case. We just use a different framework. And I think this is something that we could all ad adopt a little more. And so when we look at the risk versus return trade-off, for women, we look at emotions. If there's a positive emotion that we're getting at the end, we sometimes don't even view that decision as risky. I remember sharing this with someone and she stopped and she said, you know what? I moved my young family at the time to across the country. I didn't, you know, I had a job and I had a school for them and a house and that was it, like nothing else. You know, all my friends were saying, well, this is so risky. And for her, she said, the emotional payoff was so positive that she didn't even view that as a risk. And so I guess the takeaway there is to, to factor in positive emotion in your decision-making. If you're getting a huge reward, um, it may be worth the risk then. I love that. I think that um, I, I don't have a, I'm not a researcher scientist, but uh, <laughs> I'm really passionate about helping women build big businesses. One of the things that I actually never knew that I could go build a billion dollar business. I never knew that. I thought success and happiness looked like a six figure job and flexibility with like my future family. That is like what was painted for me, I felt as the vision of success. And when I took a leap of faith to go start this business, yeah, it was risky, but I also was only doing it for myself. So there wasn't, I didn't feel that it was risky because it was just my own risk on the line. As I grew, I think the risk was hiring people and taking the bet on saying, oh my God, I'm going to have other people that I'm ultimately responsible for. And some of the things that I have found in my 
learnings of why women, less than 2% of female founders ever break a million in revenue. And why is that? And one of my thesis is that we just don't take risk and including hiring to grow. And because we're going to be responsible for this next set of people. And so we don't actually take that risk, which ultimately stops our success and our growth or the company's success and its growth. And that is like one of the things I think that why that 2% statistic actually exists is because of our risk appetite. I love it. I think we should write the next book together, Sonera. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Think like a girl. How can we build multi-billion dollar business? Or <laughs> How to take risks like a girl. <laughs> How to take risks like a girl. It's not just about business, right? I mean, these yeah. are just natural tendencies that, and I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not a researcher, but after speaking to so many women, I really wanted to unpack why this takes place and um, I think it's a competence thing. I think all the things you nailed, it's a confidence thing. It's a confidence thing. It's a risk um, piece. Mm-hmm. And it's ultimately just going for it. It's that trait that you said in men that they are going to apply for the job if they have 60% of the skill set. And we have this perfectionist tendency to want to have mm-hmm. 100%, if not over deliver everything, everything. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, okay. We've got a couple of minutes left. We have so much more to unpack the last kind of, uh, if we had time, I wanted to kind of touch base culturally. So I wanted to maybe, uh, talk a little bit about, did you find any findings, um, from like a cultural standpoint? Is this the same for women across the board? Are there different, um, learnings, uh, based on race and culture and geographic? I don't know. Did you find anything in your research? Um, they are, they are, and again, you know, I have 10 different chapters in the book, so there are certainly differences, again, based on the myth in how even perceived hierarchies are based on whether the culture is a collectivist culture, so a more community-based culture versus an individualistic culture. A lot of times, really, the myth, and, and even in my own clinical practice, when I hear clients speak, is more just the myths that are passed on to them from different cultures. So if they're first-generation Western, what does that look like with, from their family? And it's not so much them. They want to almost break away from a myth of leadership or competence. And for them, the, the ceiling there is not necessarily the society, but even their own immediate family. And so that can often lead to, you know, a disconnect because there's so much love and desire to please. And how can they navigate that? And that's sometimes a challenge. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely can relate as a Pakistani woman of that mm-hmm. evening tendency. It's actually mm-hmm. um, something that I've really struggled with and it's just innate in me to say yes and to say, and mm-hmm. just want to please others. And, um, I struggle so hard with saying no. It is uh, one of the hardest, um, and it's it's so important as a leader, mm-hmm. as an executive, to learn how to set proper boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, but almost in my culture and my family, like there was no such concept of boundaries. Like there just literally is no concept of boundaries, and it's difficult. So I can see how culturally it might be different for the individualistic versus in my culture. Parents live with their kids for until like there's no we don't live separately. So. Uh, that's more of like the community, like the village uh, environment. But anyway, that is a really great finding as well. Anything in regards to race versus culture? Yeah, um, not so much on that. I, I think a lot of times research sometimes catches up with how our mindset is changing culturally too. But just to quickly circle back to what you're saying about saying yes, that's something you know I've encountered on a personal level, but also in my clinical practice. And a quick way around that is just to even take a moment before answering and saying, do I want this, yes or no? And so it just helps encourage a sense of mindfulness and agency back. So when I always say to my clients, start small, do you want coffee? I'm going to get coffee. I'll get you one too. 
It's just even if it's a simple task like that, stop and think, do I want coffee? Yes or no? Instead of waiting till it's a bigger question where it's a lot harder to say no to. That's awesome. I appreciate this conversation so much. Dr. Tracy, how can we support you? What's next in your journey? Where do we find you? Where do we connect with you? Yeah, I would love to connect with your listeners. You are an amazing woman too. I'm so honored to be on this podcast with you today. Uh, I have a website, tracyalloway.com. I would love if your listeners uh, connect with me on social media. I'm on Twitter and uh, Instagram, doctor, that's D-R, Tracy Alloway. I'm on Facebook as well. Uh, I'd love to hear more about their journey and, and how they might have found this helpful for them along the way. We will definitely be linking all of this in our show notes today. Thank you so much for your time today on today's interview. This was just a wonderful experience and let's all continue to think like a girl. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Follow us at CEO school on Instagram for show notes, inspiration, and exclusive behind the scenes that you won't find anywhere else. We also have an absolutely incredible resource for you. It's the seven lessons we learned building million dollar businesses. These are complete game changers and we want to give it to you absolutely free. All you have to do is leave a review of the podcast, why you love the show, screenshot the review and email it to hello at ceoschoolpodcast.com and we'll send it your way.